Today's year I'm dedicating to my father's memory. This is the 16th yard site today. And as promised in the last year, I wanted to begin by doing some conclusion um, about um, about Perak Rishon. Right, if you can get the door, Pam. All right, can you get the door? Thanks. Um, a, a, uh, some wind-up things about Perak Rishon, because actually it's going to be something that's going to touch on our study of the second Perak, which we're going to do today. In Tanakh, often structure relates itself to meaning. Um, and often the, uh, a, a, the um, feeling, the underlying text, the subtext that's being communicated is uh, informed by the structure. So as an example, two weeks ago when we talked about, or two sessions ago when we talked about Echa uh, in general, I introduced you to the notion of Kinam meter. Something that was actually was discovered formally about 100 years ago, 50 years ago. <coughs> and the idea is that in biblical poetry, meter is always balanced. So you have three stressed syllables, or two stressed syllables on each side of the half of the text. In Kina, it is deliberately not like that. And it's often three stressed syllables and the second half will have two or one. So the fellow who discovered this came up with a theory, which is an interesting theory, that it gives you the feeling that the mourner is kind of running out of breath, is running out of, out of, out of ability to talk. It's kind of like you're expecting a third syllable and it's not there because like they're breathless. I think that there may be something else going on, and I mentioned this then, which is <coughs> that the the whole notion of a kina is that things are out of whack. Things are imbalanced. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And therefore it's presented that way. However, there's far more to the structure of Yilat Echa than just the meter that informs the feeling of the text. So if you take a look at page 4, which is the one-sided page, you can see that the entire first chapter is very clearly constructed as a chiasmus. And a chiasmus, again, is where the first verse or the first passage has something in common, maybe a common word or phrase, with the last passage, and then the second one has something in common with the second to last, and it builds like a pyramid. And the point of a chiasmus, which there are tons of these throughout Tanakh, What's the point the of version of the word? Chiasmus? It's from the Greek letter chi, which is like this, an X. So it's A-B-B-A. So the point of a chiasmus is to really draw attention to the middle. To the middle. And if you take a look on, on page uh, four, you could see how the first pasuk uses, for instance, the words rabati am, rabati bagoyim, and the same word rabot is used in the last pasuk. That's just to create that parallel. And you could see all the way through, ein la menachem and ein menachem li, almost parallel phrases, I mean, parallel phrases, almost exact uh, phrases, are used in the second pasuk and the second to last pasuk. And you can just see it all the way through that it's, that it's generated that way. If you recall in the first parak that we saw last week, um, the middle of the chapter is where the shift takes place from the uh, mikonen, the observer, the dirger, and the city itself crying. And so that shift seems to be sitting at the axis of this chiasmus. Now another interesting thing about the structure, and this is unique to the first parak, is if you take a look at uh, page uh, 5, and I mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago, 
is that page five presents the uh, the parak in its um, in its usual layout of sukim aleph all the way in, in order. As I mentioned, then there is another theory about the alphabet, which is that the alphabet. If you turn the page, you could see it that the alphabet also may be starting in what we consider the middle. Now, if you stop and step, step back for a second, and something we talked about in the context of Pei'ayin, um, there is no real inherent reason that an alphabet should have an order. There's no reason for an alphabet to have an order. The only real reason for an alphabet to have an order is for students' writing. In other words, to practice so you have an order, so you remember how the order goes. But there's no inherent reason for A to be before B or B before B before C. Um, and that's why we find all sorts of variations in students' writing exercises from the earliest things that we found, which is about 9th century BCE, um, all the way through the Tesaka Temple period, when it starts to get stabilized. So, for instance, you find student writing exercises where they wrote from left to right. And well, student wait, writing... Uh, alphabet sometimes is numerologically... Uh, that's a much later uh, in, really? interpolation, yeah. Okay. That's not inherent in, in, in the alphabet. Remember, alphabets started as pictographs, where the picture looked like something. And so the, the Phoenician alphabet, which is what we use, it had uh, images that looked like a thing, and that thing gave a sound. So, for instance, a wavy thing that looks like waves is called mem, because it's mime, and therefore it gives you the m sound. And a round circle is an ayin, because it looks like an eye. Right? And an ox is an olive, because that's what an olive ox is, so they go ah, so the ah sound. And therefore, all of them look like those images. And then, because of the impact of the Persian Empire, and as a result of that, us shifting to their uh, Aramaic script, we went to what we call Hebrew script. But Hebrew, real Hebrew script is the, is the older one. And again, there's no reason for a particular order. So clearly, by the time that some of the texts that we have that are acrostic were put together, there was an order. But as you see, the order was a little bit vague. So, for instance, pay an ayin in Eicha gets switched. Um, but another component of it, and we have evidence of this from several different places, uh, for instance, in Tehillim, Tet, and Yod. Tehillim, Tet, and Yod are clearly a continuum. Because Tehillim, Tet is asking uh, God to save us from the evil people, and Yod is thanking God for saving us from the evil people. The only problem is that it's not. Tilim Tet is God, thanking God for saving us from the evil people, and Tilim Yod is asking God to save us from the evil people. So what happened? Both of them are acrostics. They're expanded acrostics, where it's Aleph and a few Pesukim later Bet, and a few Pesukim later Gimel, but you can see it. The problem is that Perak, the Perak in which we ask God to save us from the, ev- the evil people starts with the Lam Hashem Tamod Rachok, with the Lamed. It goes all the way to Tav. And the parak in which we thank God for saving us starts with Odeh, which is an Aleph. So what happened is at some point, evidently, they got shifted to fit the new alphabet that goes Aleph to Neh, and then Lam and Mem Nun, which means Lam and Mem Nun was a potentially valid place to start an alphabet. And we actually have student writing exercises in which the alphabet starts at Lam It goes Lam and Nun, Samach, Pei, Ayin, Tzadik, Shin, Taf, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Right? And the reason I'm pointing that out is because if you look at Parak Aleph on page 5, you can see Parak Aleph presented in the order that, it's nor- that, that we have. Aleph going through Tav. And it's the observer 
describing the city in its terrible pain, and then the city turns around and cries out. But flip the page and you'll see that it could be read just as well if you start with the elementa, which means you start with the lamed, in which the city begins talking to the passers-by. Why are you laughing at me? Why are you teasing? Why are you, why are you etc.? Why are you ignoring me, etc.? And then the observer is driven to sing his dirges. And it can go both ways, and maybe it's deliberately given so that it can be read either way. And I have a little explanation at the bottom of the page for that. But as promised, we're going to be focusing on Perak Bet today, so let's take a look at Perak Bet. So Perak Bet... Um, Right, Perakbet, which you have on page seven now. Um, got another one of them. <coughs> get another one back here. Possible? You think two? No. Okay. Here you go. Here you go. Go get it. Again, starts with the word Echa. Again, is twenty-two psukim. Again, is twenty-two psukim in order. Again, operates with kinam meter. So everything seems similar in structure to Parakalif. Of course, this is the first Parak where Pei and Ayin are inverted. Uh, we've talked about that. Uh, but let's take a look at the parak, and you're going to see that the focus is very different. The focus, the theme, the actual content of the parak is different than parak aleph. Parak aleph focuses on the disconnect between Yerushalayim and her children, Yerushalayim and her allies. Her allies have all turned their backs. On Yerushalayim, her children are no longer, her children are not coming to Yerushalayim, she sits alone and desolate. Perak Bet is much harsher. But I'm going to step back and ask a generic question, a general, general question, which you're going to have to reassess every time. What is the purpose of this book? Or to put it a more appropriate form of the question, what is the motivation and the purpose of the Mikonen, of Yirmiyahu? What's he trying to accomplish here? In the first parak, he's describing the city and then giving the city a voice to describe her own pain. But what's he doing? What's he trying to accomplish? And let's read in this parak and we're going to get a stronger sense of it. Again, Echa, and again, Echa meaning, how could it be? Echa ya'iv be'apo Adonai batzion. Ya'iv meaning to, to put it like a heavy cloud. He's either covering over batzion with this heavy cloud of anger, or else the covering up would mean he's covering up and disappearing. It ends up being the same thing. He has cast down from the heaven all the way to the earth the glory of Israel. Tiferet Yisrael is a, a phrase used several times in Tanakh, for instance, that refers to the Beit HaMikdash. And this is only the second time in all of Echa that there's a mention of the Mikdash, and here but there's be much more about the Mikdash in this parak. He forgot his ottoman, his footstool, on the day of his anger. What's his footstool? That's the Mikdash. And that's mentioned already in Shlomo's. Uh, right? The land is his is, is footstool, but the idea is the Mikdash. God has swallowed up without any compassion. By the way, important to note, what is the theology underpinning this parak? Let's see. Right, the belief about what we believe in, about God. Eight Yaakov. He's destroyed all the pastures, all the all the serene places of Yaakov. 
Haras In his anger, he has destroyed all of the fortresses. They've all fallen down, which seems to be an inversion on Yericho. He has defamed or made profane the the kingdom and all of its princes. These are supposed to be glorious, these are supposed to be Mamlachat Kohanim, and they become profane. Yeah. He's using three different names. So Gada Bachari Af Kol Karen Yisrael. Now Karen, which is the word we're all familiar with, but means a horn, also means a ray, but here means a horn, is used metaphorically throughout Tanakh for power. Harem Karen Mishikacha. It doesn't mean his horn, it means his power. Right? So Gada Bacharyavit Karen, he's cut down the power of uh, of Israel. Now, this here we're entering into a very dicey theological area. When bad stuff happens to Am Israel, what does that mean? Does that mean that God is attacking? Or does that mean that God is just kind of lo- loosening the protection and allowing the natural course of events to happen? Or does it mean that God is sort of pushing others to do this? And it's a huge difference in how you view it. Eicha takes all three positions in this parak. Just means psukim. Take a look. Gada b'choriyaf kol kering Yisrael, which means he's cut down our power. Heshiva chor yeminom neoyev. He has pulled his right hand back in the presence of the enemy, which means his right hand that protected us, he's kept from us. And he has burned everything up around. So is he the active one? Or is he just removing his protection? The answer is all of the above. What are we accustomed to? We're accustomed to God's protection. We're not seeing it. So God's protection is gone. But now the sense is not just that he's removed his protection, he's actively the attacker. That's the sense. Darach kashto ko'yev. And I'm saying, you read this, and I don't understand how you can't go crazy if you just think about what it means. He has drawn his bow like an enemy. And he's aiming his bow at us, his arrows at us. Nitzav yimino ketzara. Now the right hand that previously was just not protecting us is held up like an enemy. Vayarog kol machmadeayin. He's destroyed all the precious ones. And that sounds like the, the children. Be'ohel Batzion, now Ohel Batzion is a reference to the Mikdash, <coughs> the tent of Batzion, Shafach Ka'esh Chamato. His anger has come out like a fire. Now notice, he's not saying that it's fire. We're not talking about the actual fire, but that his anger is being spilled out like a fire. Keep in mind that word Shafach, because it's going to come back as one example of the chiasmus of this parak, which is very prominent and clear um, in, in a very delightful way. It's hard to say delightful about any of this, but you'll see. Can imagine what that means. God is like an enemy. He's behaving like an enemy. He has swallowed us up. Now, what's Armenoteha is a reference to the royalty, meaning the palaces. And the fortresses are destroyed. Yerev meaning did a lot of. Mourning. He has created a lot of mourning among Yehuda. By, by the way, at this point, who is credited or blamed with all the destruction? God. And what's the reason for it? He's angry. He's angry. And is his anger, anger justified? We don't hear that. And what's our role in it? We don't hear that. And keep that in mind, that the theology of Echabed is one that we're not accustomed to hearing too often. 
Vayachmos kagan suko. And now God becomes like a gardener. And he rips down the, the sukkah. Sukkah meaning like the branches. Right? He rips them down. Shichet mo'ado. Now mo'ado here seems to be a reference to the ohel mo'ed. Shikach Adonai b'tzion mo'ed v'shabbat. And that's the play. Mo'ed is both a place, an appointed place, and appointed time. God has caused the Mo'ed and Shabbat to be forgotten, because without the Mikdash. And in his anger, he has rejected the Melech the Kohen, all of the leadership. What? Shabbat. Mo'ed and Shabbat seems to be just like it is in Yeshua Aleph, in the weekly Shabbat. God has rejected his own Mizbeach, his own Mikdash. And he has handed over the walls, the protecting walls, to his enemies. Call not new of eight thousand like Kiyom Moed. To God's enemies. What? To his enemies. To our enemy. The enemy has been um, has been given has been given the control over the walls. What does that mean, kol nat nubaveit Adonai kiyom moed? It can go two different ways. Whose voice is this? So some understand that it means the voice of the enemy. The enemy is cheering, just like we celebrate in the Mikdash, biyom moed. But there's a very famous passage at the end of Ezra Gimel. Uh, it's familiar with the passage. That when the second, when the Mikdash was rebuilt, the young people who had never seen the Mikdash were cheering and they were excited. And the old people who remembered the Mikdash were weeping. And the Pasuk goes out of its way to say you could not distinguish between the weeping and the laughing. So it could be that this voice is the voice of the people crying, but it was just as loud as the celebration. So the same kind of level of, uh, of, of, of power of, of sound but of course, for a de- for a very different reason. Yeah, yeah. Is there any type of progression? This yeah, let's see the whole thing. Layout? Let's see the whole thing. Okay. Uh, it is, but you have to see the so you have to see details, you have to see four parakim to see it. Chashav Adonai lahashchit chomat patzion. What does chashav here mean? Chashav means decided. God has decided to destroy. And what what this means is that from the theological perspective of this parak, if it has happened, it means God decided it's going to happen. It's not just that it let it happen. This is God's decree. Natakav. Now, a kav is an interesting thing because a kav is like a pelas, um, uh, balance. You use it in building. You put it on top of like a uh, wall to make sure the wall is exactly even. So you put a kav. Now, a kav is usually used, kav mishkolet is usually used for construction. Here he put it to measure to destroy. Lo hishiv yadomi balaya. He didn't pull himself back from destruction. Chel is the ramparts and the choma is the wall. The ramparts is the part inside the wall where the soldiers stand. You can shoot arrows at the enemy. Right? So chel they were all They were destroyed together. And destroyed together means God set out to destroy them. Now, step back a second and ask, because we're almost halfway through the parak. what is the Mekonin trying to accomplish by describing not only the terrible destruction, but putting it squarely in God's deliberate hands. God shooting arrows at us. God aim, taking aim at us. Let's see. 
Tavu v'aretz she'areha. Her gates have sunk into the ground. And again, kind of an image of Yericho turned inside out. Ibeid v'shibar b'richeha. He destroyed the bol- the bolts. In other words, any way to protect the city from people coming in was lost. Malka v'sareha v'goyim ein Torah. Now, have to remember, the destruction of the city takes place in the summer of 586 B.C. But the proper king, as it were, and the elite and the aristocracy and the artisans, etc., were all exiled 11 years earlier. So Malkav Sarah Bagoyim in Torah can be a reflection of the fact that the city's already been bereft of Torah. There's a very famous uh, Gemara that says, Kevan Shegalu Yisrael Bitul Torah Gadomizeh. That for, once Am Yisrael goes into, in, into exile, leaves Eretz Yisrael, there's no greater bitul Torah than that. And so, and they get it from this pasuk. They are out among the nations, there's no Torah. Gam chazon And her prophets aren't getting any, any vision. Now, this of course, coming from Yirmiyahu, is very poignant. Because what was Yirmiyahu's entire kumf throughout his career? Was against the other prophets who were all giving false prophecy. And saying, sign a treaty with Egypt, rebel against Bavel, it's all good, you're going to be in Bavel for, for only a year or two, you're going to come back, etc. As opposed to Yirmiyahu saying, you've got to accept Bavel, and we're going to be in Bavel for a while, in the famous letter he wrote. So he could be referring to those Neviyah Sheker. And by the way, there's only one voice so far. The voice is the Mekone. Is the, is the, uh, the city has not spoken. The elders of Batzion, again, Batzion being Yerushalayim, all sitting on the ground silently. He'alu afar arosham. This is all signs of mourning. In Tanakh, by the way, we haven't seen this practice, but in Tanakh, one of the signs of mourning is dirt on your head. Chagru sakim. They put on sackcloth. Horidu la'aretz roshan betulot Yerushalayim. And the betulot Yerushalayim, which means the young women of Yerushalayim, who normally are, are always actually associated with celebration, with dancing, Betulot Yerushalayim have put their heads down in mourning. The whole city is mourning. The Zekinim and the Betulot is always those kind of the two images of glory and happiness. And this is what they're doing. Kaluva Dma'ot Einai. Oh, now who's talking? My, my eyes are out of tears. This could be the Mekonen, I don't think so. I think this is the city now. Chomar Merumei. My insides are churning. My insides have poured out because of the destruction of my nation. And this is the image that you got to keep in your head. Watching little babies fainting in the streets of the city. Fainting because of starvation. And this all cuts to before the destruction, the two and a half years of siege. And terrible destru- the description of the siege. Li'imotam yomru. What did these little kids say to their moms? Ayein dagan vayayin. Where is the bread? Where is the wine? Bitatfam kechalal berchovot ir. They were fainting like corpses in the cities of the in the street city in the streets of the city, in the really squares. Bishtafech nafsham elchekimotam. As they pour out their, their souls to their mothers. And they're crying, please, mommy, give me food. Right? And, and imagine this, this picture. And now the Makonein speaks back to the city. How can I compare anything? I can't, I, there's no model for your suffering. 
which is what you often do. After all, what's, what's, what is it we say to a mourner? What's the phrase we say? We say, you're not alone. And sometimes, may not be the best idea, and sometimes it is, we share experiences from our own loss to kind of help them understand that, that there's someone to speak to. There's, I don't have anything to compare this to. What can I compare it to to bring you nechama? Your destruction is as big as the sea. As big as the sea and scary as the sea. And now Yumeyahu takes direct aim at the Nevi'im. He says, your Nevi'im saw what they described was without taste, meaning it was not real. And they did not tell you about your sin. Had they been honest with you and told you about your sin, you might have done tshuvah. Rather, they envisioned all sorts of other things that were not true. And now what had happened? Everybody who's passing you by is hitting their hands. They're whistling and shaking their heads. And they're making fun of this city. Could this be the city? This is Eicha. Could this be the city that we say is the most beautiful city in the world? The accumulation of all the beauty? This city? Your enemies are opening their mouths to you. But opening their mouths like in a, in a, in a degrading way, in a, in a teasing way, in an insulting way. They're whistling, which, by the way, in Tanakh, whistling is always a sign of degradation. And Vayachrakushain means they're like chomping at their teeth, almost like they're about to chow down on you. They're saying, This is the day we're waiting for. We found it. Your Shalim is down. So far, God is only described as an enemy, and nobody's talking to God here. Asa Adonai Asher Zamam. You have to hear what the what the pain in this pasuk is. Where does this phrase come from? Because Yemiel is borrowing from the Torah. Where does this phrase come from? Edim Zomim. And what's the punishment for conspiring witnesses? Vaasitem Lo Kasher Zamam. You do to him what he conspired. Here, God has done what he conspired. In other words, this isn't a mistake. God sat in deliberating, he conspired, and I want to get those people, and he did it. And now we're starting to, to get some justification. He has fulfilled the words that he said many, many years ago. In other words, if you don't listen. He destroyed without compassion. Remember, he's broken our horn, he's raised the horn of our enemy. They've cried out to God. And so now he turns to the city and he says, You should be weeping like a river day and night. Don't break, don't give it a break, don't give it a rest. You should be weeping nonstop. Remember beforehand the city said, I'm all out of tears? So don't be out of tears. Don't stop. And by the way, the city, honestly, is buildings. So who's he talking to? Yumeo's got an audience. And he's having a feigned conversation with the city. 
This is, this is consistent throughout Shira, where the Mishorer speaks to the heavens, speaks to a rock, speaks to the earth, speaks to, to the sunrise, right? In order to motivate the audience. He's telling the city, don't stop weeping. Weep and don't stop weeping. Kumi roni balayla. Get up and sing. But the singing is painful, singing at night. Lerosh hashmurot, meaning at the beginning of the night watch. Shifchi chamayim libech. Now remember what we said earlier? God has cast out his anger like fire, spilled it like fire. Here, spill out your heart like water. And there's a subtle thing here is that maybe you can extinguish the fire. Nochach pnei Adonai. Call out to God. Face God. He's talking to the city. Well, buildings aren't going to talk to God. So who's he really talking to? He's talking to his audience. What's he trying to get them to do? There's no tshuva here. That's not what he says. What is that? Cry out to God. Because what are they doing right now? They're traumatized. They're paralyzed. Shocked. Good point. Raise up your hands to him. We'll see in the third paragraph where that phrase comes up again. You know, you want a reminder? Let me remind you about your little kids who died in your arms. Is that good enough to, to give you a kick? The ones who are fainting from hunger. He's showing a historical precedent for this idea. No, he's trying to tell them, you should cry, and I'm going to push you to cry. You need to cry. He's trying to wake them up out of the stupor. But the, there's, why would they believe him? What? Why do they believe him? Believe him what? That this is the, this is the method to... Um, he's, not creating, he's not presenting an argument. He's trying to get them to do something. Right. He's not presenting an argument. There's nothing to believe. He's not doing it directly. He's not saying to them, this is why... You he's just saying, cry out! It's an emotional tug. There's nothing to believe. And there's a deliberate play on words here. Olel is a little baby. It's the olalim who are dying in their mother's arms. And olel is to act, to do. Because the two, of course, are related. That's what you create, little kids. Lemiolaltko. God, who did you do this to? This is a phrase that we have in, in Vayikra. For mothers to eat their own children. Which of course is the most horrific scene of a siege. Now, Imshat, this seems to be talking about terrible things that are happening that Kohanim and Nevi'im are being killed by the enemy. And little kids are dying. And mothers are eating their own kids. These just horrific scenes. There's a famous Midrash that ties this in with a story that we have in Divrei Amin Bet about a particular Zechariah Navi, not the famous Zechariah. Zechariah ben Yehuda Navi, who was a Kohen, who is in the Mikdash, and the king commands that he be killed in the Mikdash because he doesn't like what he said. But the simple read of this is, because we're not talking now about sins, we're talking about tragedies. Because we're comparing little kids dying in their, being eaten by their own parents because of the siege, and Kohanim and Nevi'im being killed in the Mikdash. The old and the young are all lying out there. 
And the young ones have all been killed by the sword. Now, is this description pre-siege? Doesn't seem like it. Is it during the siege? Or is it after the destruction? It seems like it's after the destruction because he's describing actual war. But nonetheless, much of the powerful imagery comes from during the siege and the terrible hunger. And now just straight up to God. You killed. And again, at no point is there justification in here. It's not Chet Chata Yehuda, which is on the first barrack. God, you have aimed at us with your arrows. You've torn everything down. You've plotted this. You're an enemy to us. So what's the Mokonein trying to do? He's trying to get the people to cry out. And even if the crying out is just, why did you do this? Not Ashamnu Baganu. That's the first step you got to take. You got to get out of the paralysis. You know what? You, you made it like a Yantif, like a Moed, a set time. All of your enemies, okay. And, uh, okay, today's Rosh Chodesh, in two weeks, everybody come around and destroy your, your shine. Kiyom Moed. The day of God's anger. No refugees, no remnants, nobody was left, everybody's destroyed. Now that's of course an exaggeration, because he's talking. The ones that I raised, the ones that I brought up, the enemies destroyed all of them. That's the end of the parak. If you hand this parak to somebody in English or somebody who knows Hebrew and say this is what the Jewish reaction to tragedy is, you will have a very different conclusion than you would get from any drasha, any Moshishwos, and, and most of Chazal. You have to ask, why is this this way? Why is the Mekonen here presenting a picture of our relationship with God, it seems to be missing the critical point, which is our our contribution to this and our culpability here. I think the most reasonable explanation is because this is we're at an early stage in recovering from shock. We haven't recovered from shock yet. We're still in shock. You have to remember the people who show I were absolutely convinced God will never destroy his house. Look at your Meow Zion. He's never going to destroy his own house. This will never happen to us. And by the way, there was no history of it ever happening, so we had nothing to rely on. When this happens, we're in absolute shock. One way of saying it is, their God's bigger than our God, the Mitzrayim model. The other way is, the Eliyahu model, inverted. God went to sleep. That's not what happened. If this happened, it's because God took aim at us, and God did this to us. And that's our address. So if right now all you can do is scream out to him, what have you done? Why are you doing this? That's the start. And perhaps the mayim of your heart pouring out can extinguish the ash that poured out from God. As a start. But this is not the end of the Megillah. That's why you have to wait until you see Parak Dalad to see where the Megillah is leading us to. And Parak has its own separate function. So next week we're going to look at Paragimel, which is seems to be, but it's not really much longer than the other Prakim, 
Uh, and we'll see it, it, the unique function of parakimel. It takes things in a very, very different direction. Um, I have one other thing just to hand out, which is to show you that um, that this chapter also is built, I mean, just take it home and take a look at it, is built really as a somewhat perfect chiasmus, demonstrating again that that middle, now remember the middle is when the city speaks up for two psukim, the exact middle, the chaf and the lam psukim are where the city speaks up, and then the observer now is able to get to the standard of the city. Now, why is that? Because you've gone through a shock. Think about the first hour of 9-11. You couldn't talk. I could sit there and say to you, this is what's happened, this is what's happened, this is what's happened. Until you open your mouth and say, I can't cry anymore. Until you open your mouth and say something, I got no hope. So what are the first ten psukim in the parak? The observer, the mekonein, talking about how terrible it is. And using terrible terms. God has pointed his arrows at us, etc. For me, that's, I don't know, that, that vision is just like terrible. And he's doing that for one purpose, to get the city to talk. I'm all out of tears. I can't cry anymore. The little kids in the street looking to their mother for food and dying in their mother's arms. I can't take it anymore. Say so fine. Mission one accomplished, which is I got the city to talk. Now I got to get the city to cry, and that's the next ten psukim. So we got ten psukim in the beginning. We got two in the middle where the city talks and basically says I can't cry anymore. And the next ten psukim are where the mekonein ramps it up even further, makes it more devastating, in order to push the city to cry. The city is not yet ready to cry. We'll get there. But next week we're going to see another device, another technique that the Mekonein is going to try to use in order to get the city to do what it needs to do. And again, when I say the city, what it really means is the people. The city becomes a person, personalization of the people, the people, in order to effectively speak to them without them feeling like they're talking, he's talking at them. It becomes a little bit safer.